Dustin, and I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City. I wanted to begin this morning by asking, does anyone have any fears or phobias? Anybody? Anybody have anything that they're particularly afraid of? One of my biggest fears is falling. I don't mind being up high in a secure place, in a place where I feel like, um, you know, I have something to hold on to. But if you put me up high near a ledge, then all of a sudden I'm absolutely frozen in fear. I can't even watch people get close to the edge of something. Um, I've passed it along to my son, Abel, as well. If, if he gets close to an edge, I, I grab him and I pull him back. And now, I'm, unfortunately, I'm sure he's terrified of it as well. Um, I've been thinking about a bit about fear this, this week, and I think there are at least two different kinds of fears. There are seemingly irrational fears. I saw a clip recently from uh, one of these daytime talk shows, and uh, they were discussing fears, and they brought out a jar of olives. And one of the guests jumped up and ran out screaming. They were terrified of olives. Uh, now, I think we can all agree there's nothing to really be afraid of, of olives, but I guess something must have happened to her uh, that made her absolutely terrified of olives. It's a seemingly irrational fear. But there are also rational fears we can all agree on, right? I think it's right that I'm afraid of falling because I have a particular weakness. I can't fly. Uh, so falling is definitely going to end up very poorly for me. Well, today we're continuing our journey through the book of Acts as we follow the story of the first disciples of Jesus and how the early church began to spread. We've been following the story of Paul, one of the most influential leaders in the early church, as he shares the good news about Jesus with people all throughout modern-day Greece. When we encounter Paul at this point in his journey, we find that he, just like many of us, has fears hiding beneath the surface. I'd like to invite up Lorna now, who's going to read our passage for us. We'll be looking at the book of Acts. Oh, not Lorna. Um, Jemima, who's going to be reading our passage for us. We'll be looking at the book of Acts at chapter 18, 1 through 17. If you're using one of our blue Bibles, that's page 1114. Page 1114, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and walked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, 
the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names your own and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatever. Thank you, Mama. Uh, as a reminder, if you have any questions as we go through the talk or through the, uh, anything about the gathering, the passage, anything, please head over to slido.com and put in the code HOPECITY, um, and we'll be able to interact with those questions at the end. Well, you'll remember last week that we followed Paul on his journey to Athens. As Matt told us, Athens was a, at its low point, one of its low points in history, far from the thriving metropolis that it is today. And perhaps even worse for the philosophers there, at a low point in its cultural impact and influence. In our passage today, Paul has traveled from Athens to Corinth, a city with a totally opposite trajectory. Corinth had been destroyed and largely deserted by when Rome conquered Greece in the second century before Christ. But in 44 BC, about 90 years before our passage takes place, Corinth had been refounded by Julius Caesar. It was rebuilt and was now a city on the rise with over 200,000 people, and it was still growing. It was incredibly prosperous and a major port city. So it saw all kinds of people, goods, and wealth pass through there. It's also well known for, it was also well known for its immorality, um, a place where just about anything goes. Horace, a Roman poet, said, it is not every man who can afford to go to Corinth. Corinth was a self-sufficient and self-indulgent city, a wildly immoral place, extravagant, full of all kinds of lawful and unlawful pleasures, filled with wealth and a place where a fortune could quickly be made or lost. That's the setting for our passage today. It's worth noting as well where Paul has been over the last few months. Paul's entering Corinth at a relative low point. As Matt mentioned last week, Athens seems to be one of his least successful missions to date, seeing relatively little fruit. Before arriving in Athens, Paul had been beaten up and imprisoned in Philippi. He had to sneak out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night to avoid a riotous mob. In Berea, he was ran out of town by those same folks. They had chased him all the way from Thessalonica. And on top of all that, Paul had to leave behind his companions on the journey. What's Paul's response to all this difficulty and hardship? He continues on his mission with his typical pattern. He shares Jesus with the religious people in the synagogue. Then once he's kicked out of there, he moves to a nearby house and begins to share his, the hope he has in Jesus with the Gentiles. He works hard, making tents during the day so that he can support his ministry. And he finds some like-minded companions, Priscilla and Aquila. They must have been such a refreshing um, thing for him to find as he's alone, as, as he's on his own. He's left his friends behind. A little later on, Silas and Timothy rejoin him. All his companions join up. And, and at this point, we would expect Paul and his friends would move on to another city. That's his normal pattern. He shares with the Jews. He shares with the Gentiles. Um, he faces some difficulty he heads out of town and goes somewhere else. But instead, what happens next is Paul receives a vision, and not just any vision, a vision from Jesus. Jesus says to Paul in verse, verses 9 and 10, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. 
do not be silent, for I am with you. No one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Jesus gives Paul three commands. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And three promises. I am with you. No one will harm you. And I have many people in this city. After this vision, Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half, longer than he had stayed anywhere else up to this point in the book of Acts, at least in his missionary journeys. What happens as a result of Paul staying around? Well, eventually we have this legal battle take place in front of Gallio, the proconsul, which just means governor. We have good evidence outside of the Bible for who Gallio is. Uh, he was known as a meticulous lawyer. And ultimately the question that comes before him is whether or not Christianity is a legal religion in the eyes of Rome. During this time in Roman history, lots of different religions had actually been banned. However, Judaism was given a special place in Roman law because the leaders of the Jews had said, we'll give our full allegiance to Caesar so long as we can continue to worship our gods. Uh, what Galileo concludes here in our passage is that Christianity isn't a totally different religion to Judaism. Instead, it's a sect of Judaism in the eyes of Rome. This is a debate about Jewish law, not Roman law. It's a debate about who is the Jewish Messiah. Is it Jesus or is it someone else? This was an important ruling for the early Christians, and that's why Luke, the author of Acts, includes it here. It, it contributes to the stronger argument that he's making that Christianity was not a threat to the Roman Empire. So that's kind of the big picture of what's happening during Paul's time, his year and a half in Corinth. But now I'd like to back up and look a bit more closely at the vision Paul has in verses 9 and 10. I think for us, this is the most important part of the passage. The vision from Jesus begins with words that are found really commonly throughout the Bible. Do not be afraid. In fact, many visions from God begin with this exact same greeting. So are these just uh, common words in a supernatural greeting? Is this the spiritual equivalent of good morning or you all right? No, I think it's much more than that. These are words that Paul desperately needed to hear at this moment. In fact, we know exactly how Paul was feeling during this time in Corinth because he wrote about it in his, in a, his first letter to the Corinthians. He, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Does that surprise you? It does me. I, I mean, this is Paul that we're talking about. This is the same guy who not too long ago was casting out demons. This is the guy who, when he was in prison, was singing hymns. This is Paul who stood up to Peter because Peter wasn't living out the gospel. It's the same guy who last week went toe-to-toe with philosophers in Athens. When I think of Paul, I think of a hero. I think of power, of boldness, of confidence and intelligence. And all those things are true. But how does he describe himself in Corinth? Weak afraid, trembling. Why is Paul so afraid? While it's not spelled out for us, I think it's likely because of what's been happening in the past weeks and months in his life. Paul's been beaten, imprisoned, ran off, separated from his friends. One of the promises that Jesus gives Paul in our passage is that he won't be harmed. So it's logical then to, to think that he was afraid for his physical safety. This isn't an irrational fear. This is fear from experience. For Paul, it's not unusual for things to end poorly. Paul was afraid of what might come next. It's easy with 2,000 years of history between us to forget that Paul was just a guy like you and like me. We can read the story of the early church and think 
Of course Paul could do that. He's a superhero. We might think he's emotionless or never had any fears or doubts. But here we see that's simply not the case. I don't know about you, but I find this strangely encouraging. Paul, one of the most influential people in all of human history, by any measure, describes himself as weak and afraid. That's somebody I can identify with. What's Paul's response to his fear? What does Paul do when he feels weak? Does he flee? Does he run off? No. He enters Corinth, and he works hard, making tents. He reasons in the synagogue, and when he was kicked out of there, he just goes next door. He keeps on teaching the word of God for a year and a half. Paul was weak and afraid, but despite his fear, Paul follows the commands of Jesus. He keeps on speaking. He isn't silent. He doesn't let his fears lead him to inaction. As I was studying this passage, I began to wonder, what exactly was it that Paul was teaching to the Corinthians? What's the content of his message? We know from this passage that he's teaching God's word, and we know he's testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. That means the Christ or the anointed one who's going to save God's people. But 1 Corinthians, again, gives us a, a fuller picture of what, what Paul was teaching to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What did Paul keep on speaking? He spoke about Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Is that really it? Did, did Paul just have one talk that he recycled over and over again? Did he stand up every day and recount the story of Jesus' death and resurrection? Uh, no, you know, I think we, we know from the book of Corinthians that actually Paul taught all kinds of different things to the Corinthians. He taught them uh, about sexual morality. He taught them about how to use your spiritual gifts. He taught them about unity within the body of Christ. He taught them about how to treat each other and, and about the resurrection of Jesus and how, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we'll be raised from the dead as well. But everything Paul taught them was in light of the cross, in light of Jesus Christ crucified. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul explains to the Corinthians that they shouldn't visit sex workers in the temples in Corinth, the reason behind it is the cross. He explains to them that Jesus died for their sins, for the sins of sexual immorality. But not only that, Jesus was raised from the dead, and you too will be raised from the dead. And so if God is going to redeem our physical bodies, then what we do with our physical bodies matters. And so we shouldn't join ourselves to a sex worker. Everything Paul taught them was in light of the cross. That's how he can say, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. But unfortunately for Paul, this message wasn't always well received. It's in direct contrast to the wisdom of people. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says it like this, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He goes on to explain that by human wisdom, God's wisdom seems foolish. It's easy to see why the cross seems foolish, isn't it? The message of the cross is this, that God, the all-powerful God, became weak, giving up his strength for the sake of others. That's in total contrast to the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world says, use your power to get what you can. Sure, you can help out others if in the future 
you'll get something out of it too. What kind of God embraces weakness? But that is the wisdom of God. In weakness, Jesus was exalted. We, we sung about it this morning. Given a name above all names, King of kings and Lord of lords. Because it's in weakness that God's power was freely displayed when death and sin were defeated. This foolish message of the cross should permeate everything that we do. God used weakness to transform the world. And he's still using weakness to demonstrate his power today. Paul says it like this in his second letter to the Corinthians. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That seems a bit strange, doesn't it? What is it about weakness that allows God's power to be on display in Jesus' followers? When we're weak, when we come to the end of our human strength and ability, then we're forced to rely on Jesus' strength and power. Of course, we should always rely on Jesus' strength and power. But that reliance becomes so much more clear in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our fear. In our passage, we see, Paul, we see God's this power on display through Paul. Because despite his fear and trembling, despite his weakness, Paul doesn't run. He endures, and lives are changed as a result. So what gave Paul the ability to overcome his fear and keep on speaking? He trusted in the power and promises of Jesus. It must have been tempting to Paul to trust in the promises of Corinth, in the promises of human wisdom. And we actually know from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, that there were other teachers who did exactly that. They charged money for their lessons and for their ministry, and they actually belittled Paul because of his seeming weakness. Uh, we think it's probably related to a physical weakness that he might have had. But Paul doesn't hide his weakness. He boasts in it because it allows him to trust in the strength and promises of Jesus. Jesus gives Paul three specific promises that he can hold on to throughout his one and a half years in Corinth. First, Jesus promises Paul that he will be with him. No matter what happens next, no matter how things turn out, Paul has the promise that Jesus is with him. Paul finds his strength in Jesus, not in himself. The second promise is that no one will harm him. If Paul's afraid of, of his physical safety of being beaten again, then Jesus takes that fear away for him. Don't worry, Paul. No one in Corinth is going to hurt you. Of course, later in the book of Acts, we see Paul continue to face hardship and persecution for preaching the good news about Jesus. But at least for this season in Corinth, Paul can continue to talk about Jesus without fear of being hurt. And why is all this happening? Why has Jesus asked Paul to stick around in Corinth and keep on speaking? Because Jesus has many people in this city. That's the third promise. Corinth is full of people, and many of them will believe in Jesus and the seemingly foolish message of the cross. What I find interesting here is that Jesus doesn't give Paul more detailed instructions. He, he doesn't say, go speak with this person or that person because I have them in Corinth. And we know God can do it this way. He, he does it in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian. He does it in Acts chapter 9 with Ananias and Paul when Paul gets, becomes a follower of Christ. Instead, Jesus says, just keep on speaking. Yes, many will reject the seemingly foolish message of the cross, of a crucified Savior. 
but many will believe. So just keep on speaking. Paul relies on Jesus in Corinth. And it's fascinating that reliance for Paul doesn't look like inaction or laziness. Paul works hard in Corinth, but he works hard not in his own strength. Instead, he relies on the strength of Jesus. Paul follows the commands of Jesus, and he trusts in the promises of Jesus. Okay, but what about for us? What, about, what are we supposed to do 2,000 years later in Edinburgh, Scotland? The message for us is the same as it was for Paul. Follow the commands of Jesus and trust in his promises. I don't know if Jesus wants you to stay in Edinburgh, but I do know that Jesus wants you to keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Follow the commands of Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And in 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason behind your hope. The command hasn't changed. Keep on speaking. Share the hope that you have in Jesus with those around you. Sometimes you'll feel weak and inadequate, not knowing what to say. Keep on speaking. Share your story. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes you'll be insulted. Sometimes you'll be laughed at. Sometimes you'll be called a fool. Sometimes you'll be rejected. Jesus was. Paul was. But keep on speaking. Sometimes you might be afraid, but if the seemingly foolish message of the cross is true, it's the most important message in the world. Don't be silent. Share your hope. Follow the commands of Jesus. And trust in the promises of Jesus. Jesus promises Paul that he will be with him. And thankfully, we have the same promise. Jesus finishes his command in Matthew 28 with a promise. And surely I'm with you until the end of the age. Jesus is with you. Hold on to that promise. How is he with us? Through his Holy Spirit that lives in each of us as we trust and believe and put our hope and faith in Jesus. Don't be afraid. God is with you. Not only is God with us, but we can also be sure that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yes, many people will reject the seemingly foolish message of the cross, but some will believe. We don't know who the people are that Jesus has in Edinburgh, but we can be confident that Jesus has people in this city, people who will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, people who who will hear the hope that we have in Jesus, and as a result, they will put their faith and hope in him. So we have to keep on speaking. Don't be silent. You never know who will respond when you share your hope in Jesus. So just keep on sharing it. Maybe you've never trusted in any of Jesus' promises. Today can be the day. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, follow me and I will give you eternal life and no one will take you out of my hands. Put your trust in Jesus this morning. He is trustworthy and his promises hold true. I want to close by asking a question. What are you trusting in this morning? Where do you look for for strength to make it through the week? 
Jesus says, rely on me. In our weakness, Jesus' strength is on display. Rely on Jesus. Follow his commands and trust in his sovereignty because he is trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, for our crucified Savior. Thank you that Jesus was willing to give up so much so that we could have a relationship with you. Thank you that Jesus was willing to become a servant and embrace weakness, the weakness of death on a cross. I confess this morning my need to hear this message over and over again, to be reminded that I need to rely on Jesus' strength and not my own. Help each one of us know the peace that comes from fully trusting in the promises of Jesus and show each of us where we've fallen short this morning and how we can trust Jesus deeper. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.